welcome time uh, or the visitor time to introduce some uh, new guests we have with us today. Actually, they've been here before, but uh, now they're here publicly. I just want to, uh, um, well, uh, we'll welcome back Cindy, my wife, and uh, uh, she's brought back two of our uh, two of our family members, both uh, they're in the back, Asher and Christian. So hopefully, you get a chance to, well, see them somehow. Okay, uh, they're in the back there, so just uh, uh, we just want to welcome them. All right. So if, they, if they're crying, and you know, it's, it's them. All right. Take your Bibles and please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 24, 25. As we return back to our focus, uh, our series through the book of Isaiah. This book that has its, as its theme, uh, the theme of salvation, the theme of salvation. It's um, uh, probably no, no book in the Old Testament. Uh, for those of you who are kind of relatively new, we've kind of been, we've been in Isaiah from time to time. And I'll come back to I'll go and take do a brief uh, uh, kind of uh, brief brief ser- series elsewhere, and then I return to Isaiah. We uh, and but this book has a theme salvation, and we, it's wonderful to kind of reread an Old Testament book and see how clear the gospel, the good news of salvation is in this book. It's just so clear. You know, a lot of times we read in the Old Testament, we just kind of think of, oh, you know, it's, it's the Israelites, God dealing with the Israelites and how he judged them, how they, their failures, their sins. And sometimes it's, it's just not so clear about the salvation that we understand, uh, the salvation that we have uh, in Jesus Christ. And this book, though, of all the Old Testament books, is probably the, is the most uh, clear, most vivid re- revelation of the salvation that we have in Christ. So, uh, even as our, we preach to Isaiah and we come across passages that talk about judgment, or hopefully in the big picture of Isaiah, we see that Christ is revealed here in this book. Isaiah 24 through 25, we're really, uh, we're going to cover from here on out, kind of, as I sort of outlined it, it's going to be two chapters at a time for uh, at least six, seven weeks or so, and it kind of just fits in this particular, six, this particular section. And I'll, since we're taking two chapters at a time, I won't read it before. We'll read it, the text within the sermon, Isaiah uh, 24 to 25. I want you to pray with me one more time. Lord, thank you for your word, and uh, it is truth. And we pray that now your spirit would take your word and reveal it to us. Give us understanding. Speak to us, Lord. And this book, th- this particular text that is over 2,700 years old, uh, Lord, we pray that this ancient text would speak to our modern day. Lord, that because it is your word, we know, Lord, it is authoritative. It is relevant. It, is, it, it speaks to your people then, and it speaks to your people today. May you speak loudly and clearly to your people gathered here this morning. Father, give us a clearer picture of who you are. Refine our, our, our thoughts, our minds that we would think after your thoughts this morning. And Father, we commit our, our, this time to you and pray you be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we kind of think about prophecy, you can't think about help but think about the future. You know, when I was thinking about future, it's future things. I've always thought, especially when I was younger, you know, and I wanted to kind of, it's a very a popular theme in our, our modern day movies, is, is to know the future, right? Wouldn't it be great if you knew the future? Don't you think? At least we think it'd be great. You know, to, to know whether tomorrow the stocks are going to go up or go down, right? To know the, the winning lotto ticket numbers this coming week. Because then if you knew, it's really not gambling, right? Then you could buy the ticket and you could win. See, it's not gambling then. Because you know already. To know whether she'll say yes, right? When, that, to a date, that is. 
Uh, knowing the future will change how we live. To know if we know that tomorrow we're going to uh, lose our jobs, well, today we're probably not going to buy that big giant boat that we've been hoping to get. Um, knowing that uh, maybe tomorrow uh, I'm, I will get into an accident, well, maybe today I'm going to start driving a little more carefully to avoid that accident. Okay, So I, I take the, the different theory on future, you know, like you could change it. It's a possible future. Okay, but that's not, neither biblical, that's not really a biblical thing, okay, just God knows the future. All right, that's just kind of in the movies. In many ways, I mean, it would just be awesome, I think, for us, if we could just know the future. And that's what kind of, when, when it comes to prophecy, it is a revelation of the future. Uh, we may not get as excited about prophecy because it's not telling me immediately about what lotto number is going to happen or what, whether the stock's going to go up or down, but it tells me a future that is much, a future information that is much more important than the weather, the stocks, the finances, whether uh, someone's going to say yes to me or not. And knowing the future ought to change how we live. And that hopefully that's what we've been doing. That's what the prophets have, have are, why, they, why God gave the prophets to Israel. So that they would know the future, know what's coming, and change their lives accordingly. Of course, if you study, if you've been in our adult one class, even when God reveals the future to the people of Israel, they don't change. They just continue on, knowing, even knowing very clear that judgment is coming. But no, we continue. And that, well, sadly, that is us at some times as well. Today's passage marks a new section in Isaiah. And uh, this book of prophecy is a revelation of God's future. Uh, future, not only a near future for Israel, but also a far future. In this section of Isaiah, we start kind of looking to the far future, what will happen in the end times, at the end of days, in the days of when the Savior, our, our Lord and Savior, returns. As a, just a brief review, we've looked at Isaiah. In Isaiah chapters 1 through 12, God had rebuked and offered hope uh, to Judah for her, not only for her rebellious sin and her hypocritical worship, but he offers a hope that it comes to them through the coming Messiah. Because of her sins, God was going to bring judgment upon, uh, upon Israel, the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. He would do so primarily through the nation or the empire of Assyria. Judah needed to learn to trust the Lord. And yet, instead of trusting the Lord... Their king, as well as the people, turned to put their trust in the, in the nations surrounding them. And so in chapters 13 to 23 of Isaiah, God pronounces a series of judgments upon the nations, the local nations around, uh, around Judah, around Israel. And one by one, God kind of lists these various nations, starting with Babylon, uh, going to some other, other nations, and ending with the nation Tyre. And God tells them one by one, each of these nations, for because of their wickedness, because of their evil, I am going to judge. Uh, and the judgment would be, for the most part, all uh, the immediate judgment that would come at the hands also of the Assyrian Empire. Now, we, we just completed that maybe a, a month or a half, two months ago. And so we arrive at this new section. We've looked at the immediate judgment or, or a near judgment. Isaiah then, God through Isaiah, then takes us all the way to the future to a far future judgment. In fact, when we think about judgment, we think about the end of days, the day, the, the day of the Lord. And we might have to think about the book of Revelation, which is an apocalypse, an apocalyptic literature. Isaiah, this section of Isaiah is considered or sometimes called Isaiah's apocalypse because it does describe 
the end of days. It describes the judgment. When you read, read Revelation, you read all that judgment. You go, wow, it's crazy. Well, this, this, these four chapters describe some of that crazy judgment. It also describes the return of the Lord that we also find in Revelation, and we're going to find that as well. And so in the next two sermons today, today and next Sunday, we're going to look at these far future events that are going to take place, in, in, which is really a contrast to the, the near judgment upon the local nations, the surrounding nations. It is a description, this, these chapters are a description of the far future events uh, for not only for Judah, but for the whole world. And as it reveals the future, it, it is meant to cause Judah to understand that their trust, their worship must not, their reverence, their fear must not be in the nation surrounding them. But it must be in the God who holds everything in place. It is the God who holds in control of all time, the one who is going to bring judgment in its time, and who also will bring a savior in its perfect time. This is the one whom they all should be looking for. And that's the kind of the, the where we're heading this, mo- this morning. It's an outline for us. It's two chapters, so I kind of broadly outline it as two worldwide future events that await this world. But as we await this world, for those of us who have ears to hear, it should shape how we live, shape how we think, shape how we trust, how we worship. All right, let's, let's look then at these two events, and it's kind of, I think it's a pretty simple outline, uh, but uh, hopefully it'll just cause you to just be amazed, even as we go through this, the consistency, the closeness, especially if you know, are familiar with Revelation, how this is really just matches up with Revelation. A lot of Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter uh, 4 all the way to 21, it just kind of connects in with that. Number one, <clears throat> what does the world await? Well, the whole earth awaits a coming judgment. Number one, that's what we see in chapter 24. We see <clears throat> chapter 24 that there is a, a judge that is coming that will bring judgment upon the world. We read in verse 1, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And we see very first and foremost that this judgment is, is not a, done by any third party. It is done by the Lord himself, Jehovah, God he is the one who is going to bring this judgment. And as we kind of look at this judgment that is coming with, along with the judge, we see four aspects of this judgment in this text, in this chapter. We see, first of all, that it's a global judgment. It affects everybody in this world. We read along. Uh, we've already read verse 1. Let's read verse 2 to 6. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. As we arrive at this chapter, there's one interpretive issue that kind of stands out that you have to kind of real, uh, figure out before you can understand the, the rest of the, ch- of the chapter. Is that is this phrase, when we, we see the word uh, <clears throat> earth there, it is the Hebrew word eretz. And it can be translated as land. And there is some debate, usually liberals, who say this is not a worldwide judgment. This is a, a judgment that's limited only to the land of Israel. 
And certainly the word can be translated as land, and, and that word is used to refer to the land of Israel. It's, it can refer to land or earth, depending always, the meaning always depend, dependent upon context. In fact, we find the word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz, the land of Israel? No, the earth. The context is the earth. And here, as we look at this context, it is clear to me, at least as I look at this text, that it is the earth. The word, first of all, uh, you'll notice that most of your English versions will translate it as earth. But in verse 4, you see the earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. There's a synonym for earth that's used here, the world. And that word means the world, not the land. And the verse one, the verse twenty-one also has a very a similar synonym, and so that kind of just this, as long as the content, the context of the chapter, would just confirm that this is a, a worldwide, a global judgment, not just a limited to the land of Israel. In case uh, someone ever brings that up to you, see there is a judgment that's coming according to this text. It's from the Lord. He's going to lay the earth waste, and it will come upon the whole earth. It will come upon all people. Notice verse 2. It's going to happen whether you're a people, regular person in the pew or you're the priest, you're the pastor. Whether you're a worker or you're the master. Whether you're a servant or you're the mistress. Whether you're the, you're the buyer or seller. It doesn't matter who you are. This judgment is going to affect you just the same because the whole earth is going to be laid waste. And then what's more, this will happen. This is not just might happen. This will happen according to verse 3 because the Lord has spoken this word. God has spoken this word, and since God has decreed it, there is nothing that can turn away this judgment. That's how serious this judgment is. This is a guaranteed thing that's going to happen because God has spoken it in his word. This judgment is, is, is certain, but though God decrees it, we, do not, we cannot blame God for it. You can't say, well, God, it's your fault that this world is, is, this, this world is going to be destroyed. No, it's going to be destroyed because of us. Verse 5 reveals why this world is under judgment. It's because the inhabitants are guilty of sin. They transgressed laws, violated statutes. They broke the everlasting covenant. There is some there's debate about what that everlasting covenant is. Some say Abrahamic, uh, uh, Mosaic, Noahic, Edenic, uh, Davidic. Uh, you know, you name all the covenants. Okay, I haven't heard new covenant, but the general idea, rather than trying to figure out which covenant it is, just know that when you say you break a covenant, you're basically disobeying God's word. And that at the heart is why God, this every inhabitant upon earth is under judgment. Because we all have broken God's word. We've all broken our covenant with God. As our creator, at the very least, we should obey him. Just as very, the fact that your parents gave birth to you, brought you in this world, raised you up, we should obey them. And when we don't, it breaks that relationship. Because all have sinned, all are guilty, all are under a curse, according to these first six verses. Now, so this judgment that's coming is global. Secondly, the coming judgment will be a dividing judgment, as we look at verse 7 to 16. That this judgment will somehow divide the world. Though it will devastate the whole earth, we see two very distinct responses to this judgment. You kind of think, wow, when judgment comes, it's going to be kind of a similar response, right? Devastation. Shock, awe, mourning, weeping. And understandably, there is mourning. Verse 7 to 13 reveals this. The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. 
The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that, no one, so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the great harvest is over. There's a lot of imagery here. There's a lot of imagery here, though, of wine, of, of, of olive trees, etc., of, of, well, uh, and things being desolated. But what's kind of overarching theme throughout this is that there is sorrow. All joy turns to gloom. There, wine is a, in, the, in the Old Testament was associated with joy and celebration. But in this future judgment, all joy will turn to gloom. There will be no reason to celebrate. And not even in the city. And the mention of cities here, cities were in those days the strongest places, the safest places you could be. You want to be safe from attack, you would go to the city. You would go there for protection. But even the city's gates are battered down. There's no joy even in the cities. They are left desolate. The judgment will be so great that there's going to be mourning throughout the earth. There's going to be sorrow. That's the first response. There's going to be many who will sorrow. But in contrast to this mourning, in verse 14 to 14 to 15, 14 to 16, we find an odd response, a response of rejoicing. There's going to be some who are going to rejoice over this. Verse 14 to 16, they raise their voices, they shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the, the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Apparently, there will be some who will rejoice, and we understand, and we interpret this, these, these some who rejoice to be part of the faithful remnant. Those who will, uh, few who will be followers of God, followers of Christ in those days, who will have faith in God, who will put their trust in him, who will be martyred, many of their relatives and their families will be martyrs during the tribulation period and, in, and, and during that time of judgment. And they will rejoice at the coming of this judgment upon the world because they will know that this judgment is a signal that the righteous one, the Savior, is coming soon. They will cry out throughout the, all the earth. They will give glory to the righteous one. Notice that emphasis on the righteous one. Their focus even in judgment is that God is righteous. You know, the wicked, when God judges them, will say, God, oh, curse you, God. I hate you. But the right, those who will follow God, when they see judgment, they declare that, God, you are right. Even when that judgment, that discipline comes upon me. Because I, would, I deserve it. God is right if he would want to, to judge me and destroy me and, and bring my life to complete ruin. God's judgment is an act of righteousness. His wrath is an act of justice. For it is a punishment to those who have committed sins against him. And although the faithful will rejoice at the coming judgment, Isaiah, we see at the end of verse 16, we, we see the personal pronoun, I. His, for his part, he, he mourns still. Because that day is still far in the future. But at the present, he sees only surrounding him sin and treachery. And so he mourns. He says, oh, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. And I think his response is the example of our own response to that world. Our world under judgment. 
And we see the world. We, it is great joy knowing that God's going to come. He's going to judge. But until then, when we look at our world, we realize the, the world we live in, we know this, we should be saying, woe to me, woe to me. God is going to judge all these people, these people in my life, these my neighbors, my friends, my family who are not believing. And we're not for Christ. In this particular Isaiah, we're, in the Old Testament days, we're not for Christ. We would be under that judgment too. This judgment is dividing judgment. That judgment is going to come and some are going to rejoice and some are going to mourn. Thirdly, this judgment that we're going to ha- see in that day is going to be an inescapable judgment. Verses 17 to 20. Isaiah now addresses directly the inhabitants of the earth, the inhabitants, those who dwell on the earth. He addresses them directly in Corinthians 17 to 20. We read, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. That's you and me. That's us. We're inhabitants of the earth. Those are the people who lives on the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. And it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it. And it will fall never to rise again. You see, it's just all the words here are very, they're just kind of building off on each other. And just conveying this, this terrifying, this overwhelming judgment that is coming that there's nowhere to hide. This is, there's complete terror upon every inhabitant of the earth in that day. No matter where one flees, they are unable to escape. They think they fall into a pit. They climb out. They think, oh, no. Then they get caught in the snare. There's no place to run. There's a picture here. The, the windows above are opened. It's an allusion to the judgment of Noah. Remember judgment of Noah when the floodgates of heaven were opened. And what came out of heaven? Water came out of heaven. The, the depths of the earth opened up and water came out and flooded the whole earth. This is another picture of that. Judgment is coming because the windows to heaven where the God dwells has opened. And, what, and it's not going to be rain this time. It's going to be according to the old te- according to Revelation, it's going to be fire. The world's going to come, and its judgment's going to come to fire. And, the, and we read four through, uh, four through, about uh, eight, four through nineteen even is this all the tribulation judgments that are going to come, the the different uh, the various judgments that, that are prophesied there. What's more, uh, there is no there is going to be earthquakes as we see here. There's going to be trembling. The foundations of the earth shake. The whole earth, and that's the thing about earthquakes is you can't escape from it. You can't escape. <laughs> we all know that here. There's no place to run from an earthquake. You just kind of duck and hide, you know, but you're going to feel it wherever you're at. Just pray that you will survive. But this, this earthquake that's going to come is going to shake the whole earth. Um, many of the imagery found in these verses are particularly reiterated in the sixth seal judgment of Revelation. That's found in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 to 17. And I won't read it for you, but there in verse 15 to 17, it describes even what we see here, that everyone's going to try to hide from the judgment. When the judgment comes, you know, this is natural. You either fight or flee, and you can't fight it. You can't fight earthquakes, right? You can't fight hailstorms. You can't fight the plagues. You just can't fight it, so you just flee. And the description is that people are going to run to their caves. They're going to run to the mountains. And they're going to say, mountains, fall on us, hide us. I don't mind if you just close us off forever so that we can be hidden from the judgment is what people are going to want. 
But even then, it says there's no place for them to run. Because the great day of the wrath of God, of God the Father and Christ's wrath has come. And no one is able to stand. No one can stand in the judgment that's coming. Because we will all fall under his wrath. We cannot resist it. Because in that day, all who have rejected God and his son will experience the terror and the judgment of the day. Even those who do turn to Christ's faith will experience that, will live through some of that judgment. Some of them will be martyred. But even those that are martyred will go immediately into eternity with him. Verse 20 just describes it like a, the earth, the whole earth is going to be like a drunkard. It's good. Earth under it's just tottering, about to fall. It's weighed down. It's about to crumble, to fall to its knees. Why? Because of its transgressions. Again, you see, it's the sins of the earth, the sins of the heavens of the earth that this judgment is coming. And it's inescapable. If, and if you have sin, your judgment is inescapable. I know we're say, well, I have Christ. I have Christ. We'll, we'll get there. But just think about it for a moment. If you do not have Christ, don't even think go there. All of us are under this judgment. It is inescapable if there is sin in our, uh, in our lives, and all of us have sin. It is so inescapable that not even the angels escape. As we see in our fourth observation, that is the universal judgment that is coming upon this world. I know it sounds a little bit global, but I'm thinking universal in the sense of universal to the ends of the universe, to the heavens and to the heavens on high. Verse 21 and 23, that this judgment affects even the angels. So it will happen and in that day. Again, here when we start seeing that phrase, that day, in the day, the, the day of the Lord. That's that, um, that eschatological future day of judgment. In that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun is shamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. The host of heaven that's mentioned in verse 21 refers to angelic beings. Those who are in the angels and not just, uh, and particularly the, the fallen angels. In the day of judgment, Satan, who is the was probably the highest of angels, but fell because of his pride. Along with the fallen angels who followed after him, they will be punished in that future day as well, along with the kings of the earth. Much of this is described in Revelation chapter 20 for us. And there, John's vision records how Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He'll be imprisoned. They'll be gathered together like prisoners, as according to verse 22 They'll be held for, this text says many days, but in Revelation tells us that he's going to be in prison for a millennium, a thousand years. But after the thousand years, he'll be released. And after those, that period of release, he will then be punished. He will be, he, the, the beast, the, uh, the antichrist, the, the false prophet, and Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. And then after that, after the angels are, uh, the de demons and the devil and the de his demons are cast into judgment, then the kings of the earth will be judged, along with all the peoples. Revelation 20 will describe that there's going to be a great white throne judgment that's established. That's established, and there, everyone that is, at this point, that has not been uh, gone through previous judgments will be raised to be evaluated, to be judged by God. And if their name is not written in the book of life, they, will, they too will be cast in to the lake of fire to be judged, to be, to be punished for eternity, to be burned 
in darkness and fire. All of this judgment is coming. There is no one who will be spared. It's not just global. It's universal. It affects all heaven and earth. This global, dividing, inescapable, and universal judgment takes place because of our sin, but by the hands of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts who will reign, who will come down and reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And he will come down in his son, Jesus Christ. And he will reign from Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders, the, the, the leaders of the, of the people. They will, everyone will see him. All of us will behold that glory someday. Revelation 19 affirms this coming of Christ to judge. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is where it will describe how he comes down. He was faithful and true, and, and he, will, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his judgment is coming. Speaking of him in Revelation 21, 3, a loud voice will say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Christ is coming, and Christ is the judge that brings this judgment. The whole earth is awaiting this day. And this alone by itself is a terrifying prospect. If this was our hope, if this was all we had, if all we knew was just were that the world is waiting judgment, we would be hopeless, wouldn't we? All the things of, our, of everything in our, our lives, our families, our works, our occupations, our deeds, all of it would be meaningless, would be vanity. It would really be empty. It would be for naught because it's just waiting to be burned up in judgment. And then we'd all be cast into the lake of fire. That is hopeless. We might as well just go around killing people and doing whatever we want. And that's kind of hopeless too. However, we are not left with such hopelessness. There is another great worldwide event that is waiting this that is waiting our world. And that God, a holy and righteous God, sent us a Savior. He sends us, as promises to send us a Savior to save us from the curse of sin, to save us from eternal death, to save us from the terrifying wrath of God. And that's what we see in chapter 25. In chapter 25, the whole earth awaits a Savior God. And for this reason here, this reason, Isaiah leads himself personally, he just responds personally, in exalting our Savior God. This whole chapter reads like a praise psalm. If I saw this in the Psalms, I would say, wow, that's a great psalm. Because it just, it just deserves to be sung in praise. And we see that we, and he praises God, first of all, because he, re, he recognizes that our God is, a number one, a defender of the helpless. In verse 1 to 5, he says, oh, Lord, you are my God. I want to stop there. Actually, I will exalt you, he says. I will give thanks to your name. And I want to stop there. For here is the beginning of worship for Isaiah. And worship begins, we cannot forget that worship begins with this acknowledgement of a personal relationship with God. Oh, Lord, you are my God. You know, we gather here to worship God. Our worship is meaningless. It is not what God wants unless we have a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. 
If you have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, all that you've sung today, all, you could have gave a million dollars into the place. You can go out and just do something. You could save a life even as you head out the door, some, do some CPR or somebody. All that you do is, is, is worthless before God until you bow the knee. And all our worship is worthless until we bow the knee and we confess him as our God, as our Lord and Savior. We must submit to him and put our, our trust and dependence upon him to save. And now it's out of this dependence that comes worship. See, God doesn't want our worship to say, here, God, I give you my worship. That's pride. God wants our worship because, Lord, you saved me. I, I, my life is, exists to worship you. And even though it's not perfect, I want to live for you. I want to do my best for you. Uh, this dependence comes worship. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Isaiah recognized that God has protected him. And God protected him out of a, God's protection of him and his people is, a plan, is part of God's plan. It's a plan that was formed long ago from eternity past. It's a plan that God will bring to completion with perfect faithfulness. What's great about God's plans is that they are always come to place, come, to, come into fruition. God can always be counted on. If he makes a plan, it will come to pass. This is not just something that's going to hypothetically happen. This, is, this promise of a Savior that is coming to protect them will, will happen, will historically happen because of God's sovereign plan. We read then, furthermore, how God, our Savior God, is a defender of the helpless in verse 2 and 3. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will, be re it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. God protects the helpless from the ruthless. The city here in verse 2 describes this uh, is, a, is always, again, the picture of strength of a nation. There seems to be the picture of enemies here, strangers, ruthless nations, and they have cities that are mighty, like Damascus to Aram, or Nineveh to Assyria, or Babylon to the Babylonian Empire. Likely this city here that's mentioned is the city Babylon that's going to be destroyed. That's, usually, that's mentioned in, in Revelation as well, which God will judge at his coming. And it will show by, that God will destroy the mightiest city in that day will be a revelation that God is able to judge all those who oppose him. God will destroy the city that opposes him and the nations that oppose him and the people that oppose him. No defense rays will stand against him. For this reason, the nations who had once opposed him will too bow the knee. They too will come to revere him. They will fear him. Where they will glorify him. They will bow the knee in worship. And we know this uh, just in very places of Isaiah, we see the nations coming to God in submission. Verse 4 beautifully describes God's protection of his people. For you, and we just, and we kind of sung it, some of the, these words in our song um, today. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat and drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. 
all those who are helpless, all those who are needy, all those who need refuge, all those who need shade from the ruthless, from enemies, from the greatest enemy of all, sin, can turn to the Lord for defense, for protection. The helpless turn to the Lord for the ruthless enemies will be helpless against him. And the Lord will deliver them all. He will protect them. He will defend them. Those who are helpless, who turn and trust to him. And that's kind of just even a picture of salvation. You know, before we can ever go to turn to the Lord for salvation, we must recognize that we are helpless, that we are needy, that we need a Savior. If we never recognize that we need a Savior, if we don't recognize we're needy, and I can imagine this room, there, it's possible there are some of you who came in today who may not yet know Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something, circumstance in your life that's brought you here, a need, a sorrow, a burden, a weight. God wants you to come and recognize that, yes, I put that burden, I put that sorrow, I put that need in your life so that you would recognize that I'm needy, I'm helpless. I'm defenseless. And God, I see that I, I need you. I need Jesus Christ. That you would turn in saving faith to Christ. For God is the defender of the helpless. Secondly, uh, we praise God. We can worship God. This, uh, we, Isaiah exalts God not because he's a defender of the helpless, but he's also a deliverer from death. This and this, uh, this truth is, is more sweet to me the older I get, I tell you. I deliver from death. The more death I see, the more death I, in the world, the more death that I'm aware of. Even this past week, many of us who had known uh, our, um, our dear friends over at Brian, Aaron, Pastor Aaron and Tina, the loss and the death of their daughter Emily is a grievous weight upon our hearts. Even though we know God is good and she is uh, with him, yet... That sorrow, that pain, it makes us realize how terror, terrifying and sorrowful death is. That it's really the effects of sin and makes us long for a deliverer from this death. This death that is just all over this world. God is a deliverer of death. Our Savior God is delivered from death. Verse 6 and six through 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There will be a celebration in that future day when the Savior God comes because he will prepare a banquet, um, the marriage supper of the Lamb for all peoples who follow him, who worship him and bow the knee to him. And what will they celebrate? Because he has defeated death. Verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time. You know, in, you know, we think we see death now in the tribulation, in the seven-year period of God's, when God pours out his wrath completely upon this earth. There will be death that we, is greater than anything we've ever seen or can imagine. 
and it will be terrifying. And it will be when Christ comes, the Savior God comes, he will deliver from that, all that death as well. All that death will be no more. There will be no more tears when the Savior God comes because there, there will be no more death. And how do we know there'll be, this will happen for sure? Because, again, verse 8, for the Lord has spoken. There is some, you know, sometimes we, we just, you know, we're too used to man's words. We can't depend upon man's words. We've got to learn to be people who depend upon God's words. And whenever we see God says, I've spoken this, we just take, oh, that's, that's good as done. The Lord has spoken. And death will be swallowed up. It will be swallowed. And this is in Isaiah's day. Death, salvation from death is sure because a Savior God is coming. That's from Isaiah's day. And, of course, you and I know now in, the, after, in, in this day and age that God, the Savior God did come at his first coming. When Jesus Christ came, he came and he died on the cross for our sins. And so that all whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So that whoever believes in him, even though he dies, will live because of Christ, our faith in Christ, because he is the resurrection and the life. And this is the God whom Isaiah and the people in his day waited. This is the God whom we have waited for. This is the one who has saved us from our sin and death. He has come. But what's more, he's coming again. Even this, this prophecy here is fulfilled in part at his first coming, but it will be completely fulfilled at the second coming when Christ comes again and he will completely swallow up death. Christ died the death we deserved so that we who believe in him might live the life that he lived because of the righteousness that he imputes, gives to us in Christ. We need to respond by trusting in him, confessing him as Lord. Great quote, by the way, of, uh, that refers to um, 25 verse 8. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. And um, I just put it up here quickly, but I don't have time to read it today. So, But just meditate upon this. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Encouraging truths for, for all those who are particularly experiencing death these days although jesus christ has come and gone the world waits for his return and when he comes he will complete the salvation that begun when we believed verses uh 10 through 12 reveal even a last thing about him that is god is a deflator of pride <laughs> we all know that word deflator these days if you're following the nfl but um there's going to be a deflator of pride uh, god is going to deflate those who are pride proudful pride in that day now, I'll read it just briefly, but for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Again, it's the mountain. This reference completely through mountain in this section is all the Mount Zion, which is a, another term for Jerusalem, the temp, particularly the Temple Mount, which, that, where the temple of, of God is. And Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pyre. Wow, very vivid. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hand to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground even to the dust. So God says simply here that he's going to bring down all those who are proud. See, to be a, 
It is pride that causes us to oppose God. The follower, of, the follower of God is one who humbles ourselves before the Lord, who acknowledges him as being God. For those who are prideful will be laid low. This is our Savior God, the one who is coming. And he, is, he, is come, he, he, he has come and he is coming again to defend the helpless, to deliver us from death, and deflate those who are proud. This is the one who, who in the prophet by according to Isaiah, is the one that those who hope in God ought to wait for. What are you waiting for in this life, brothers and sisters? What are you waiting for? You're waiting to, for the next event in your life, the next kind of thing, you know, the next thing coming up. I know uh, that's kind of how I used to see life, waiting to... Just get done with school, you know, graduate, waiting to get done with college, waiting, expecting to uh, get complete seminary, waiting, excited to, to get married, waiting to have children. That was a long one. Uh, waiting <laughs> to get that first house, waiting to get that job, waiting to get that promotion, waiting for that next thing, that next thing, that next vacation, that fabulous trip, waiting for the, the, the next Nexus phone personal testimony <laughs> you know we're, it's not necessarily wrong to wait for these things uh, it's kind of we understand that you know these are things that we can kind of be excited about as we as our, we live in this life but these are all we must mind that these are secondary compared to what is waiting ahead waiting this world awaiting all of us that there is waiting this earth a future judgment a coming judge who will judge this earth in a terrifying manner. But that same coming judge is also a coming savior. And he's coming to deliver this world. Deliver it once and for all, completely from its, this curse of sin upon this world. And there is going to be a day of judgment for all. And it comes, with, it comes either when you die, appointed for man wants to die, and then comes judgment. Or if you are not yet a believer in Christ, it will come at that great white throne judgment. At that moment, you will be raised up to be judged before God. And it will be a terrifying wait as you wait, wait to see if your name is in the book of life. God has brought you here today that you would hear this truth. That you would make sure that you have repented and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, who died in your place, so that you just would turn from, turn from your selfish sin and your way of life and turn in, in, in saving faith and just grasping onto Christ, you would find salvation and you would know the, the joy of waiting for the Savior God that is coming. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time just in your word. Uh, there's so much that we went through today, so many details. And we see that this is just an inkling of, of your plan for the world. Father, we thank you that, praise you for the promise, for you have spoken. And we know that this, because you have spoken, these things are sure. Lord, we, we pray that the knowledge that this world awaits judgment, and this world is awaiting a coming judge and a coming savior, 
may cause us to make sure, first and foremost, that we are not going to be caught up in that judgment. That we would be delivered by casting our faith in Christ. Help us to make sure not to be deceived even in our, in our own, in our own uh, righteousness. That we would not say, well, because I've done this, because I went to church, because I, I read my Bible and if I'm saved. Father, that we would once been reminded that it's completely because of the righteousness of Christ. It's completely because we cry out and depend upon you. We cling to you. We'll cling and hold on to you to, into eternity. Only because of Christ will we stand in the day of judgment. Father, for those of us that have already known Christ, we pray that our lives would be like Isaiah, that we would exalt you, we would worship you, we would live for you, and we would tell others about the judgment that is coming and how the Savior, and that, that judge is also a Savior, and that people today can be saved. Use us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Please exit out. Uh, head on to Sunday school class. Starts in a little bit. Exit on my left, your right. And have a wonderful week. God bless.